are non-linguistic animals conscious? Are they knowers? Do they know things? Do they plan for the future? What about bees when they navigate a forest? Do they know what they're doing or are they automata? Uh, these are some of the questions that I put to Dr. Carlos Montemayor in our sit-down conversation in this episode of the Parker's Pensies podcast. Now, this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode was recorded live in person at Florida Atlantic University as we were celebrating the opening of the Center for the Future Mind at MindFest 2023. I'm looking forward to bringing you guys a lot more episodes, a lot more content from that inaugural uh, conference. So be looking for that. The audio may be a little bit quiet, maybe a little bit off. I jacked up the, the audio recording. That's my bad, but uh, it's not going to happen again because I got some new equipment. So don't worry about it. You may have to turn this up a little bit, but uh, leave me a like and all that stuff and trick the algorithms into thinking this is a good video. Anyways, Dr. Carlos Montemayor is awesome. He is an expert in the field. He's a really generous, cool guy. You're going to love this episode. If you guys want to support the podcast, Patreon, or YouTube members. You can find the links in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. So without further ado, let's jump in with Dr. Carlos Montemayor. So Carlos, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Man. This is great. Thanks for coming. Yeah, definitely. Can you tell the audience where are you currently working right now? I'm uh, currently at San Francisco State University. Uh, I've been teaching their philosophy for the last uh, almost 12 years. Yeah, I'm a philosopher of mind and psychology, working currently on artificial intelligence, my PhD is from Rutgers. So good, yeah. We talked a little bit about that and we had some of the Rutgers people on the podcast, so it's a Rutgers-friendly podcast. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk about a little bit of your dissertational work? What did you, you do that on? Yeah, it was under the perception of time. Uh, so I originally was working with uh, Zenon Pulitzian on multiple object tracking yeah. in his vision lab. And uh, there a big question is, what were the built-in requirements for perception of space, at least visual space, but of course that applies to cross-model space. And then I became really interested in the similar questions at the time where we were looking yeah. sort of assumptions of our perception of time. And so I ended up uh, doing sort of like a epistemology heavy way of approaching the topic. Oh, cool. So uh, my advisor was Alvin Goldman, but I read a lot of animal cognition with Randy Gallistow and how animals perceive time through their circadian reasons and through some other mechanisms they have uh, for navigation. And so yeah, so that that was my entry point into like animal cognition. Yeah. Uh, because with the visual stuff, uh, most of the experiments are in, on, on humans, and human vision is very well studied, very well understood. Right. Uh, but time perception, it turns out, uh, is very well understood, and there's a lot of paradigms that are studied, but also a lot of animal cognition yeah. literature is on, on, on time perception. So yeah. That was a, that was a. <laughs> So good. And that, and that brought into uh, you brought that into your uh, panel discussion yesterday about animal consciousness. And for the for the audience, we have uh, we're here at Mindfest, and that should be known in the introduction. But uh, there was a, a panel on infant consciousness, animal yeah. consciousness, and then like mini brains and petri dish type consciousness yeah. as well. We talked after your, your talk about uh, time binding and animals' perception, like you just mentioned. Are you familiar with Mortimer Adler at all? He's a like, popular philosopher of the last century, like a popularizer type dude. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I've heard of his name, but I'm not. Yeah, sure. But so he, he talks about um, the uniqueness of, of humans, and it's, it's dated, right? It just came mm -hmm. out in like the 90s. But he said that one, one of the unique aspects of humans is that we are what he called time bonders, that we 
Uh, we think of the past, our past selves, our past societal history, and then we can also think of in the future. And wonder, do animals time bind like that? Do, do animals, can you help us with animal perception of yeah. time? Yeah, so animal perception of time is very complicated. It's a very complicated issue. Uh, insects uh, use it to navigate complex environments. They don't have a, a very long lives, yeah. but their perception of space and time is very robust. They have a sense of numerosity, for example, they can count up to a certain number. They, they can perceive things like rate, the rate of change of an environment, which is a function of time and change, time and number, really, rate. And of course, you know, they, the, the, the big research there is there are circadian rhythms, uh, different stages there are other ultradian infradian rhythms that uh, determine how even plants uh, track time and uh, so I would say that life as such is a time binding mechanism because okay. we depend on cycles right. uh, the reproduction cycle is time bound the hibernation cycle is time bound yeah there, there are an animal clocks that are very precise uh, throughout across nature and of course this the, the most important natural natural cycle is the circadian cycle yeah, for sure. our cycle. This is a cycle that turns out to be super important for insect navigation. And as you move on to other animals that have more robust kinds of memory and, and, and especially sophisticated kinds of episodic and semantic memory, yeah. uh, they start looking a lot like us. Right? They, they, yeah. they can label events really precisely. Okay. They can calendarize their life. <laughs> they can, for example, scrub jays, birds, corvids, have these very uh, interesting capacities to, for example, know where they hit a certain kind of uh, food, sure. an insect or a worm yeah. versus a piece of walnut. Oh, sure, yeah, I've heard about this. And like squirrels will do that, although from what I've heard, they bite off uh, certain like nuts so they don't grow, but other ones they don't need to, so they don't bite off the tips and stuff like that. Yeah, so, 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 so these animals with, which, with larger memories, they can actually uh, bind events not only with respect to the cycle of 24 hours, which is what how most people understand insects, right? Like they're time-bound, they're kind of stuck in the present, or, and their, their, their cycle is very, it's like really like, they're trapped in the 24-hour cycle, like groundhog day, <laughs> but, but these animals are not. These animals are, are they travel in time to the extent that they can plan to, uh, to, to, to revisit certain places in the future, also uh, have a very robust representation of the past, yeah. at least in the sense that they know where they hit information. Uh, Corvids even know if, if, uh, if all other uh, birds saw them hide the food, then they remember that they changed the location. Wow. So they have a very good memory for location, for the time uh, they uh, hit the food, but also the identity of the, of the, of the food they, yeah. they hit. And so, for example, uh, Corvids are also very good at knowing the rate of decay of the food that they so wow. they would they would visit the warm because they, they have an idea of how long it would take to decay yeah so i mean this is uh experiments that that, that uh, show that they're more uh that you can predict that they will visit into that is let's say uh, not going to be very good in two or three days than something like a knot or something like oh, wow. that better. Yeah. Um, so these animals, um, they're not the typical animal. I mean, we would say they have some kind of uh, memory system that is robust enough, at least semantic, semantic and episodic memory. But even if, it, if it's rudimentary, they are intelligent. Yeah. We don't really typically think of them as okay. They're they're kind of like conscious like us, but they they do have this complex intelligence, and uh, they bind. Uh, events 
much more cognitively than insects or plants. So plants are kind of time bound to the cycles of nature. They're time, plants literally are bound to the, to the, to the soil yeah, and right. to their metabolic needs. And they, uh, they need, their most important need is to consume light. So they're kind of bound by nature natural cycles. Insects are less bound because they can represent the environment binds events in a different way. So, for example, they can bind an event that is like, okay, I'm going to navigate towards the hive, and then I'm going to scout for food. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah. yeah. That and blew the, my mind yesterday when you talked about bees navigating uh, forests. Yeah. For whatever reason, I never thought that that was a big deal until you said that. I was like, wait, we have such a hard time navigating forests. Yeah. And, and so maybe it's like a scent thing or something, maybe they're automaton, but just trying to think through, like, that's pretty wild. You mentioned the wobble dance and stuff like that that they do as well, but... Yeah, sorry. So the no, no, no. Yeah, so, 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 one way of thinking about this is that the, 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 the even something as, as uh, simple, but a nervous system as simple as the, the nervous system of a bee is already capable of this very non-trivial task. Right? Yeah. Like navigating a forest, the waggle dance is kind of an interpretive, uh, communicative act, which are with a, with something like a communicative intention. Yeah. Like there's food there. Here's the orientation. People, but like. The dances interpreted in that way. Sure. So they're less bound. I mean, they're, they're, they're binding events to their cognitive capacities, but they're doing that in a way that is a little bit more abstract from what the okay. environment is imposing on them. Right. And then birds are like the next step where they're really working with cognitive categorizations of the environment, okay. timing events in a way that is not bound by the 24 hour cycle and having this longer representation of time. That then, in the case of humans, that's that's where things get tricky. Uh, we have the most abstract representation of time, of yeah. probably of all species, right? Sure. Because we think the past. We can we can conceive of the past going back to infinity, and the future back to I mean, on, on to infinity. Yeah. Uh, we know that that's not true because of some physical uh, properties of the universe. But we 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 have this very interesting capacity to memorialize, historicize the past, yeah. very deep into the past. And project into the future, um, and, and and so this leads some people to think that this capacity to time travel across yeah. our our lives and narrate ourselves is unique to humans, mm -hmm. and that we can bind time not only in terms of events that are important to us and that are biologically important or external to us, but we we actually narrate events in a way that are meaningful to us. Yeah. So we create meaningful narratives out of this capacity. For narration, and many people think, uh, or some people at least think, language is needed for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so the, the language, um, I should mention again that the, um, the panel was on non-linguistic animals and non-linguistic things that are conscious or yeah. thought to be conscious, and different ways to, to tell whether they are or not. And the linguistic one's a really big thing for me. I, I've studied a lot of Don Davidson, mm -hmm. and, and he just hammers that point that you need language in order to have... He has his paper seen through language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, yeah. And rational animals mm -hmm. and all sorts of his, his triangulation argument, which my audience should should know by now, you guys, if you listen. But um, <laughs> I wonder about uh, if, if, if we're talking about uh, animal cognition uh, or just cognition in non-linguistic animals and representation, and are we speaking, like, analogically about this? Like, like... Um, Gibson has this famous uh, thought experiment about a dog barking at a tree. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you and I can say that dog's barking at the wrong tree because we saw the squirrel go in the other tree. But the dog, it doesn't seem like he has propositional thoughts. Mm -hmm. They have like propositional content because um, he doesn't have a language. And it, 
we can say squirrel, but maybe he thinks it's that brown thing or that smelly thing or the aspect problem yeah. comes up. Like, so, so what do we mean when we say that animals have like knowledge or, or time-bound knowledge? Yeah. What, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a really tough question. I mean, yeah. in epistemology, yeah. Davidson and other thinkers were. Uh, I mean, many of them were interested in the distinction between cognition and perception. Yeah, sure. The boundary between uh, what we logical cognition, the manipulation of propositional content yeah. through concepts, and uh, and then basic perception that some people think well, it's, it's either non-conceptual, quasi-propositional, or analog in the sense that you don't really have contents that are specified by uh, sharp uh, ways of building them through. Uh, uh, propositional content that have accuracy conditions yeah. they're rather like bossy like yeah that right. yeah, that yeah, yeah. so um, that was a big a big aspect of what Davidson and other philosophers were doing the sort of conceptual non-conceptual distinction animals are generally thought of as non-conceptual thinkers uh, many people think that humans also have non-conceptual capacities uh, that's for example our motor control system our capacities to navigate the environment uh, our perception of time yeah. Don't, like, time is very interesting because we represent time linguistically for sure through counterfactuals, right? Like, uh, if I uh, arrive at the meeting on time, then mm -hmm. I can I can have lunch at this other right. time, right? So, or we can think of time uh, as you know calendarically, right? Like this event happens in this day, and you know. but we also just have a sense of time, which doesn't seem to depend on linguistic concepts or characterization. So, for example, I, I, I can sense that something is urgent. Or I can have an urgent need and experience that as time through my metabolic yeah. capacities. Or I can sleep and then feel that I overslept. Or I can be at a, this is a, the famous example of the stopwatch, the so-called stopwatch, okay. which is not a circadian rhythm, but like literally like a stopwatch that you initiate and you stop. And there's a, a correlate in our neural system that is related to attention okay. that we use. For example, the typical example is your stoplight and people are very good at knowing when the light is going to turn green. There's cues, of course, yeah. but there's, there, the people are just good at timing short events. And, and so some would, some would say that that might not be, uh, that may be an example of non-conceptual yeah. time. Yeah, yeah because the, here you seem to be representing an analog magnitude yeah. as such, okay. without categorizing it as like seconds or milliseconds or, or, yeah. or using a specific metric system. And uh, so that, that's one aspect of the question. The other is, Non-linguistic animals are thinkers and knowers to the extent that they are. This is an external, externalist characterization of what they're doing. But yeah, right. an internalist. I'll, I'll use one in a second. But okay. they're reliable at uh, producing something that looks like beliefs, such as I, I buried this piece of, you know, I buried this worm two days ago. I should revisit that. It's going to go bad. Yeah. That looks like a proposition. So maybe they don't have the linguistic capacities to really. Uh, articulate that, but they do have some capacity that is reliable, that allows them to succeed at different tasks, and that looks like it's some kind of knowledge, even if it's not like the full-fledged conceptual sure. knowledge that we. Sure. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, and they can't. They can't um, relay that to us. Sorry, I, I, the train of thought. I see it's still going, but um, maybe they wouldn't be like justified. But who cares? Because they don't have the language in order to for us to ask them, anyways. Is, or, or would they be just like because of reliability? So that's what is interesting about, about Davidson. So Davidson would say that uh, justification really depends on something like the evidential relation and the support among beliefs. Yeah. So he had this view that only beliefs can support other beliefs. Right, yeah. um, that would be incompatible with, if, 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 for example, if bees lack uh, that 
proposition of structural belief, they would not be justified, even though I think Davidson would say they have capacities that are non-trivial. So, for example, since they are attending, uh, let, let's imagine like the, 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 the... And I think he says something along these lines in that paper, in the Seeing Through Language. That they're not fully justified, but they're communicating because what they're doing is... They're, so imagine that there's the waggle dance and imagine there's two scouts looking at it. Yeah. They do have the capacity to what, what, what he calls, Davidson called triangulation. Yes. So they can triangulate and, and say, yeah, you mean that orientation, and, and then they can coordinate. Yeah. Uh, that is a non-trivial communicative capacity, and maybe, you're right, who cares if they're like fully just because they don't have beliefs? They can communicate. Yeah. And the basis of language is that capacity to triangulate, plus, for Davidson, the full epistemic justification, justificatory capacity to articulate beliefs in a way that they have a relation of mutual support. Many contemporary philosophers shy away from that commitment to belief. I mean, so many, many of them would say, no, you know what, the, bee has, the, bees, have, the bees have evidence. Uh, so you can construct that in a more internally friendly way. They have in, evidence that they should go in this direction. That's good evidence. Yeah. And they don't need, uh, uh, as long as they're acting on this sort of reason uh, that they have evidence, that's that's enough to say that there's some yeah. kind of cognitive. They behavior. don't need another belief in order to back that to a thought. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so my my audience is going to want to know some some things that we've been talking about for a long time about dogs. Uh-huh. So I have to bring this up. I, I have uh, my dog Theophilus is. Uh, oh, that's a great name. Yeah. He's, oh, that's uh, very cute. <laughs> yeah, he's he's like a, the unofficial mascot. So I always have to ask philosophers about my dog. Yeah. Um, do you do you think that dogs have beliefs? I think dogs have definitely something like uh, proto-beliefs. I don't I mean, I, okay. if, if you think beliefs are explicit, articulate, uh, accessible at a personal level things, maybe dogs don't, don't really have that okay. because that assumes a lot of non-trivial linguistic machinery. Right. But uh, dogs are very sophisticated in terms of emotional intelligence. Yeah. So they have reactions uh, to our emotional system that are really finely tuned. Dogs are super interesting because in our uh, evolutionary archaeology, I mean, like, when we became humans uh, and we were cohabiting with, with Neanderthals, there is evidence that humans were already uh, doing something like taming the wolves and turning uh, wow. into, into dogs. I mean, there's, like, this evidence of, like, uh, uh, footprints of uh, a young, very, you know, ancient human in a cave that was also inhabited by Neanderthals. And there's also a footprint of... of, of Wolfish looking yeah. uh, dog. His best friend goes all the way back. Yeah, no, it really, and, the, and, the, and the burial sites, you know, there are burial sites where there's, you know, very ancient uh, uh, humans. I mean, these are more recent findings, and people were buried with their dogs or with uh, animals. Uh, we have a, a very strong connection with, we were hunter gatherers for most of our evolution. Clearly, we bonded with dogs in a, in a way that is very interesting. Also, again, their emotional intelligence. Uh, even if they don't have full-fledged beliefs, they seem to be in tune with us in really interesting ways. Yeah. And they're also super intelligent, right? They're, they, they, they're, the way they uh, track features of the environment, if they're in a pack, where right? I think they're, they're wild, they are very sophisticated hunters. And, and of course, they derive from wolves, yeah. which are among the most interesting collective uh, yeah. groups of them. Yeah. So um, some of the discussions that have been happening over the week have mentioned the fact that Consciousness and intelligence uh, don't go hand in hand. They don't necessarily go hand in hand. Maybe they can come apart. Um, so I can imagine, you know, a dog being intelligent but not being conscious. But um, 
Dogs are conscious? Is my dog conscious? I, I, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Do you think my dog has any degree of self-consciousness or self-awareness, the concept of a self? Mm -hmm. I would say that dogs probably don't have a very robust narrating sense of self that we have. But they do have a sense of, uh, they have a perspective. So, so the, 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 I mean, probably your dog has a perspective where you are a very important member of right. his pack. Right? Yeah. And, and the idea is that perspective, uh, so, so the way I think about the distinction between intelligence and, and, and consciousness is bees and many other creatures with intelligent capacities that may not be conscious, they have capacities to attend to their environment. So attention is something that matters to intelligence in a way that doesn't necessitate consciousness. When you say attend, um, I'm thinking like uh, Husserl and stuff like that's popping up. Uh, it, is that like, is that a more robust view than like uh, just perceive? Do you mean something more robust than perceive? Uh, I mean may maybe something, uh, if, if you mean conscious perception, something that could be compatible with unconscious perception, yeah. so maybe weaker yeah. than full perception. Okay. And the idea is that uh, a bee, for example, may not have a full representation of the environment, but is capable of selecting information in a way that that information can be used for acting in, a, in an intelligent way. Yeah. So, attention is this selective filtering capacity that uh, can be used for action and cognition without necessitating phenomenal consciousness, which is this oh, okay. non-trivial uh, perspective on the world. So you can attend without phenomenal consciousness? At least ex experimentally, there's evidence that you can. There's the cases of blind sights that, that people oh, talk yeah, about sure, in the future. Sure. But also conceivably, uh, there's, there's uh, at least possibilities where other animals can attend to the environment in ways that, that, that don't necessitate the kind of phenomenal conscious perspective that we have. So that, that seems like that would be evidence for the possibility of philosophical zombies. It's evidence for partial philosophical zombies, okay. or at least conceivably, conceivably. you can think of uh, uh, I think uh, Block has this, not Block has this thought experiment of the super duper blindsider. Yeah. Which is like a zombie because uh, there's nothing it is like exactly to be this, this uh, super duper blindsider, but the cognition is still there, the capacities to attend are yeah. in principle still there. Uh, so, I mean, these are probably our cognition is not the kind of cognition where you can completely dis can separate. The phenomenal consciousness from attention, sure. but that I think that possibility opens up. Yeah. If you think about definitely artificial intelligence, yeah. it opens up across animal the animal kingdom, and you can think of uh, animals like dogs uh, who definitely have a perspective that it that it, it is something it is like to be done, yeah. and it's a, it's a it's a very interesting thing. It's it's phenomenally rich for them. It involves emotions and so on. They may not have language, but they have that on top of their attentive capacities. While there are other species like insects that, that uh, may, may only have attentive capacities without this robust sense of like what is it like to be like. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's helpful. One, a really good point that you brought up uh, yesterday in your talk was that we we get really excited when we think about AI and AGI and should let's start tossing rights and stuff yeah. like that. When, when a lot of the animals that we do think are phenomenal conscious, we just step on them or whatever. We, we don't make any laws for them. Yeah. Um, when it comes to um, uh, rights and stuff like that, what's the connection between um, 
uh, maybe it's like a legal connection. I don't, legal's not as fun for me, but um, in attributing rights and moral status of mm -hmm. some kind to an animal, how, how important is the phenomenal consciousness mm -hmm. question? Yeah, that's a really tricky question, a very good question. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think there's this funny asymmetry, and, and I'm glad you bring this up, that we want to throw literally billions of dollars to the development of a technology that many of us, or at least some, even some engineers think, may become conscious and then start like hiring lawyers for them and stuff. Uh, while we do know, or at least there's incredibly good evidence that many animals are conscious. Uh, they're conscious in ways that are very similar to us. This involves the higher mammals, you know, the apes, the great apes, the dogs, uh, many mammals at least. And it's a very interesting question, which other animals? Yeah. And so people that are interested in doing that, so for example, uh, there's a recent paper about crustaceans being conscious. The, kind of the idea is, yeah, we need to be real, uh, we need to be responsible about the moral standing of these animals because for moral standing, being conscious matters, right? So it, it, it matters in different theories, but it really matters in the, in the utilitarian theory where uh, what makes you uh, a member of the moral community is, 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 is the fact that you can suffer. Yeah. And that, that suffering is something that you experience through your phenomenal consciousness. Yeah. And so that gives you a standing. And, and, and so these folks want to say, oh, look, they, these animals have moral standing. Now, what I tried to say yesterday is uh, it's funny that we try to do that with AI, but also it's, it's, it's interesting that we're confusing the legal question with the moral question. Because yeah. even if animals were not conscious, we could still protect them on other grounds. We protect corporations, not because they're sentient, we protect them on different grounds. Yeah. So we, we protect them because they're kind of autonomous agents with their own resources and they create goods, they sell goods, and they need protection to do that effectively. Yeah. So I think we, we- talk about forests, you know, off air, we talk about you know, certain rivers being protected and, and such like that. Exactly, so, so we need to protect the conditions that Animals require, including the protection of forests, rivers, etc., so that they can, so that we can effectively protect them, and that requires legislation. And we we tend to be more willing to project these capacities for consciousness and protection to AI systems than animals, many animals. Um, so how we're going to protect the environment through the law is really interesting. But one one important thing is. We don't need to think of forests as conscious. We, we, we can just think of them as, you know, the, the kind of, the, you know, interesting structures that are sort of autonomous and we want to protect them the way we protect banks. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's such a good point. I wonder if we care more about AI because we think that they're going to be like us and they can suffer in a way like us, whereas a crustacean, I don't know, you just want to eat the lobster so you don't really think about it, I guess. But, yeah. Um, yeah, there's been some, so I studied philosophy of religion, and a problem in philosophy of religion is the problem of animal suffering. Mm -hmm. It's a particularized uh, problem of evil. And some responses to that have said that animals don't suffer, they can feel pain, but they don't suffer because suffering might require like, reflecting on your pain. Is there anything like that going on in, in the animal consciousness literature about whether or not animals can suffer? And I, It's probably a technical sense of suffering, right? Mm -hmm. but I don't, I'm not familiar with the literature enough to know. Yeah, so um, many people think the, that uh, 
It depends on your, uh, as you said, uh, if suffering is some kind of conceptual state or some kind of judgment. Sure. And if you have a, a view of emotions, according to which emotions are some kind of representational state that looks a lot like a judgment, yeah. uh, then uh, animals won't be able to have that kind of uh, uh, cognition. I, was, I would say that, that most people working on animal cognition, what they would do is see what are, what are the main, this is what people did, for example, in the crustacean paper. What are the main signatures of suffering uh, or intense pain in humans and other close to human animal? Behavioral markers, uh, neural markers. Yeah. See how much of that you get in, 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 in other species. And the idea is, maybe, I mean, if, if you, maybe you don't get the whole thing we call suffering, but, or the sophisticated concept of suffering, which in, in our, uh, is, I mean, the, the big concept seems to also be culturally dependent. And, yeah. but, but you do get the, the, the sort of the basis for the judgment, sort of like the, 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 the important aspects of the experience that then we use to conceptualize suffering, you get those in many animals. Yeah. And so the idea is, uh, probably with babies, you know, babies don't have really the whole concept oh, of suffering, yeah, right. but maybe they do have some kind of suffering that is very close to animal suffering. Yeah. And we do protect babies. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we, we probably, if, I mean, if that's the reason why we protect babies, there's very, very strong reasons to protect Animals. That's a fantastic point, especially pushing it back on babies. Yeah. I can see no one would probably want to do this actively, but if you said, like, well, animals don't suffer, so therefore I can burn the beaks off my chickens or whatever, mm -hmm. no problem. And you just go right back to the babies and say, well, can you burn the toes off of the baby? Because yeah. it's not going to suffer in the same way as it's technical center. Well, of course, it's going to feel pain, and in at least the folk conception of suffering, it's going to suffer. So don't do that to your chickens. Yes. That's a really, that's fascinating. I love. And you can pull it back like that. That's really, really good. Um, you brought up uh, phenomenal needs and epistemic needs mm -hmm. uh, in non-linguistic animals that have consciousness. Uh, can you can you broach those two topics for the audience? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, So that's based on on uh, this recent book that, that I that I just published on, on AI, which is open source, right? It's open source. Okay. Yeah. I'll put cool. the link in the description. I'll email you. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So everyone, Thanks. you can you can find that open open source book in the description wherever you get this podcast at. Thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, thanks. So this is a distinction between the phenomenal needs and the epistemic needs that I, I discussed in, in my recent book on AI, um, which is open access. And, and the, the, the idea there is if you have a system that behaves a lot externally like us, right, like responds to questions, looks like, I mean, like a perfect version of chat GPT, you still have the problem that uh, to call really that system intelligent, generally intelligent, uh, we, you need to ask what exactly is happening behind the scenes. What kinds of needs is the system representing? Uh, what kinds of needs the system has? And, and one way of looking at the alignment problem is we do have these two sets of needs that come from very different perspectives. One, one I call the epistemic needs perspective. These are needs that many animals that may not be conscious have. So bees are a good example. Yeah. These are representational needs, cognitive needs to uh, track objects in the environment. Uh, some very basic capacities to memorize events, uh, motor control systems that were, you need to use that to navigate, accuracy conditions, things like that. Those are epistemic needs that have to do with 
how you as a knower can uh, know certain things about your environment. Yeah. And then there's these other needs that come with the perspective of what is it like to be you. And I call them phenomenal needs uh, because they require things like experiencing empathy, social bonding, uh, the need to, to, to care and, and, and feel cares. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so these are needs that mammals definitely have. Uh, bees, bees don't necessarily have. Bees probably not, don't have them. And then we have these very unique, non-trivial, phenomenal needs that have to do with moral and aesthetic experiences. Yeah. And aesthetic experiences play a very big role in the lives of humans. And humans, do, you know, go through a lot of sacrifices to become an artist or be artistic yeah. or, or, or appreciate art. And, and of course, there's no epistemic calculation behind that. Those, those are just different kinds of needs. And one thing that I discussed in the book is that in many ways, those needs, I mean, so for example, Maslow, who is this psychologist, Abraham Maslow, thought of these needs, the, 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 what, what I'm calling the phenomenal needs that have to do with these transcendental needs, like the aesthetic needs, or yeah. spiritual needs. Yeah. He said those... Transcendental, that's a great word on the podcast. It's good. Yeah, so, so transcendental needs, according to, to Maslow, are at the very top okay. of the human set of needs. And, uh, and that's why people do sacrifice uh, many things for their faith and, 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 and their uh, religious convictions. And they try to uh, live a life where they can have religious experiences. And they live a life where they can have a beautiful, meaningful life where they can have aesthetic experiences. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so going back on to suffering, which we talked about a little bit, um, suffering maybe is like the anti of a need. It's like you maybe you have a need not to suffer, you don't want to suffer. Would would suffering fall under uh, epistemic needs or phenomenal needs? That's very interesting. So I think some animals. Uh, avoid suffering, so let's think about insects, by detecting bodily damage okay. without much of a experience that, you know, like, that, that would feel bad to oh, them. Like bees, do you think bees? I think bees avoid harm okay. without really experiencing gotcha. something like we experience, right? Okay. Our experience of suffering is very complex, so we can experience suffering by seeing someone else suffer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we also experience suffering when we undergo bodily damage, but under many, many other conditions. We experience very intense suffering when we grieve. Uh, so uh, phenomenal, the, the phenomenal need to avoid suffering is, is much more complex than the, than the mere epistemic detection of bodily yeah. damage, right? So, yeah. it, and, and you can think of extreme cases where uh, you actually don't care that much about whether your body is going to be damaged because you want to save someone who's suffering. Yeah, and uh, that your suffering, in a way, would be bigger if you didn't help them. You you came up with such a good example about saving someone else. I was thinking I do jujitsu and wrestling. Uh -huh. I was thinking about when you're in a submission and you're gonna let you don't care about suffering, you're gonna let it break because you'd rather win. But your example is much better because it's about someone else. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they're both uh, examples. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but it's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, you can detect what is making you suffer. Yeah, and you can avoid that. Yeah. Another thing is to avoid that because of your suffering and because of your experiencing of suffering. Oh yeah. And because that experience feels really bad to you, and that 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 experience is, is not necessarily tied to whether or not you're detecting bodily damage. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, hmm. so I wonder if it crosses categories where there's suffering, like for our just uh, between uh, your P needs and your E needs, your epistemic and, and proposition or uh, phenomenological needs. Do you think that there's like 
two avoidance behaviors and maybe the bees don't have the phenomenal one, but like humans have both. Does, does that make sense? Or do we only have, you think maybe ours is just the phenomenal? Does, yeah. does no, no, it makes total sense. So, so some people are born, and this is something I discussed in previous work, but some people are born with a genetic condition. It's a, I, I'm not going to remember the name of the disease. But it is a condition where you cannot experience pain. What we call sure. uh, 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 the, the experience of pain that has to do with uh, body, bodily harm. It's, it, it, there's, a, there's a term about the, 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 the phenomenology. Yeah. I think it's called nosological uh, pain. But So we know that we're in pain because we feel it yeah. immediately. Now, these, uh, these people that are born with this uh, condition, they learn. How to avoid pain they know that pain is bad they just don't feel it and, and many of them live short lives because it's hard for them you get to, a on their foot and they don't know it and gets infected yeah i mean when they're very dramatic case like a girl you know has this condition something fall, falls on a boiling uh, uh, pot of water they would reach for it yeah and, and you know like then, then someone's like what are you doing and right. they would not feel it but they they learn that it's bad so they have a as, as you if, if you want to put it this is a very extreme case but uh and I will talk about a different, not as extreme case in a second, but you can think of these uh, people as satisfying the needs of uh, avoiding harm through epistemic. Gotcha. So they have to represent the condition. Some of them have to learn how to react to pain so that others don't freak out. Oh, sure. Because it freaks out people. So for example, I, I, I'm not looking and like I'm one of these people and something just goes across my arm yeah. and I would still be talking to you and you'd be like oh my god like yeah. we need to call them on one and so they learn yeah. that this freaks people out and yeah. they need they learn to say oh ouch 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 are they are they pretending or does it become so much part of who they are that they're habituated where they actually are reacting it's super interesting that they do it because of other people wow uh, but I don't think it's because they feel anything gotcha. so uh, but then we that's very alien to us right like that, that's one thing I, I think is interesting that I also uh, uh, mentioned in the book, is that uh, this perspective gives a perspective of familiarity. We're familiar with pain because we experience things that are bad for us. Pain for these folks is kind of unfamiliar. Yeah. They, they need to learn it through representations. And, uh, another case that is very familiar to the, to the, to the philosophical literature is Mary. Right? So Mary learns yeah. what is it like to see rest. Before that, she's a very good epistemic agent. She has epistemic needs about color, yes, like detecting yes. red. But once she learns red, she has new needs. And one of the new needs is, you know, red kind of looks nice in a sunset, right? So <laughs> those needs of like experiencing red in those contexts where you're getting an experience that is not just epistemically reducible, yeah. or at least in principle, it's a different kind of thing, where right? like an experience of beauty, of the beauty of a sunset, is not just like, oh yeah, it's you know, 6.30, it, it should be sunset and I'm representing that accurately, right? right. So, Even though it needs, like, maybe she, maybe red becomes her favorite color and she yeah. wants to wear red dresses instead of blue dresses. Or something. Exactly. Yeah, that's it, fascinating. And it, it will, it will uh, play a different role in her life yeah. than, than this previous knowledge that she yeah. has. Yeah. That's fascinating. If, uh, if you guys want to hear more about Mary, uh, Frank Jackson's been on the podcast to talk about Mary, though, unfortunately, he bailed on the Mary experiment and ah. became a physicalist himself. But, um, yeah, uh, Carlos, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. This was like just a shotgun approach to just like get a bunch of your ideas out there. Uh, I'd love to have you back on to go more in depth on, you've, you've written so much, you've done so much work on certain areas. So please come back on. I would love to yeah. be back on, yeah. Um, and talk more about, uh, what's the name of your dog? 
Oh, Theophilus. Theophilus, yeah. Yeah, that's well, that's great. Theophilus, yeah. yeah. So uh, if the audience wants to find out more from you uh, and get more of your stuff, where, where can they find you at? So uh, I teach at San Francisco State. I do have a website. Uh, it's uh, my name, CarvonTomiller.org. Okay. Uh, and uh, there's a website for the book where you can download the PDF. Okay. And I, uh, I'm, you know, I, I would love to respond to your audience questions through email. Awesome. And uh, and I would love to be back. Awesome, yeah. fantastic. All right, well, folks, you can find the links in the description wherever you're getting this at to uh, Dr. Montemayor's, uh, org page and to the book. So go check that out. Um, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.